had some troubles with PowerPoint this morning, which means two things. We're going to be moving through a lot of text today, so if, if you need a Bible, there's one in the chairs in front of you, uh, or you can listen as the Word is, is read to you this morning, um, as it was heard for many, many years, uh, in many ways. Uh, it means a second thing. It means if I decide I don't like my notes, I can change this sermon and go wherever I want, and no one else will know about it, so that's exciting, too. Um uh, Oh, Perry has a copy of my notes. Could you throw those away real quick? That'd be great. You know, there's a, a history uh, in a lot of churches of coming to Christmas and it being the one time of year that you're not supposed to talk about the birth of Jesus because that's what the world does. Um, and, and I'm not sure that that makes a lot of sense to me. I understand kind of the, the desire there uh, to say that, that while some people focus on the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus once or twice a year, we celebrate it every single Sunday of the year, and that's true. Um, but if you have a football team that at the beginning of the season says, we've got three really good quarterbacks, what you know is that they have zero really good quarterbacks. Uh, and if you say, we're gonna celebrate the birth of Jesus every year, you run the risk of not ever celebrating the birth of Jesus. Uh, and so it makes sense to me that, that we instead do what the church has done uh, in other places over the last 2,000 years, and make sure that in the calendar there are days that are set aside to remember how big of a deal it is that God came down to live in this earth. And I think that's a big deal. And, and I'm going to argue today that to some extent we've kind of gotten comfortable taking that for granted. Taking for granted the reality that God, who is the creator of the universe, came and was born in a manger. And learned to walk. And learned to talk. And, and to live within all the limitations that come with humanity, that God did that. And we've heard the story so many times, and we've seen the nativity scenes so many times that we've lost the, the mystery and the wonder and the miraculous, uh, incredible nature of God becoming human has become very ordinary because we've desired for it to be so believable. But the truth is that, that the birth of Jesus, the Son of God, to Mary, who is a virgin, is in fact the answer to so many questions that the Old Testament is asking. Questions that, because we know the end of the story, we forget to ask and we lose the wonder of the answer. We take for granted the scandal of the Messiah being born to a woman who wasn't married in a manger. We take that completely for granted. That God's own son, God, the king of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of all the universe, had a son and his son was born uh, in, in rejection. His son was born in poverty. His son was born in shame. And, and all of this happens and we forget the scandal because for us it looks like a cute little nativity scene. And you put it on the mantle and you walk by and you go, man, that makes me feel happy. We lose the scandal that the angels, when they announced and proclaimed that the king had been born, didn't do so in the greatest courts and in the greatest ways and with trumpets and grandeur. They did it to shepherds out in the quiet field one night. We're not surprised or amazed by the reality and the true story of rulers from the east who were likely foreigners who didn't know anything, who may not have known much about the promises of the Messiah, but who saw something in the stars that told them they needed to pack up and go see something. Sometime later, as they arrive 
at the home of Mary and Joseph, and they see this, this boy. And they give gifts to this king of kings and lord of lords. We lose the mystery and wonder of it all because we've seen a few too many Christmas specials. The reality is that this story is filled with wonder and mystery and miracle and beauty. And it's incredible that it happened. And the story answers questions that echo throughout the Old Testament. Questions that were of incredible importance, but because we know the ending of the story, we fail to feel the weight of the questions that the Old Testament is asking and that the birth of Jesus answers. And so today I want to go back some into the Old Testament and into the promises God is making and into the challenges that exist for Israel. And I want us to see that Jesus is the answer to so many crises that exist in the world that he's born into. Because we really need this foundation of understanding the crisis that the birth of Jesus solves before we can begin to appreciate what it means for us today. What it means for us that God lived on earth as one of us. And we need to begin in the beginning because the story of the birth of Jesus doesn't begin in Matthew chapter 1. It begins with the crisis that leads to the need for Jesus to be born. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, this is shortly after Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent, and they took the fruit, and they hid from God, and they found out that they were naked, and, and all of this happens. In Genesis 3, verse 21, Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Just a week before this day where Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden, they have uh, the ability to live in God's presence. They can walk with God and they can talk with God and they can, he, God has provided everything that they need. And it's their responsibility to care for and tend the garden and it's Adam's, Eve to name all, Adam's responsibility to name not only Eve, but all the animals, and the animals pass before them, and, and, and Adam names them. And there's this incredible peace and harmony. It's the Hebrew idea of shalom, shalom, ultimate peace that exists in the Garden of Eden. And the shalom exists in the relationship between Adam and Eve. All of humanity has peace. There's a peace between Adam and, and the creation. A peace between him and the animals. He doesn't have to be afraid of them. He is their master and he names them and, and he is the tender of the garden. Uh, it's not until later after the flood that God says you can now eat meat. And so it appears that Adam and the animals didn't have this kind of fear that enters later. There's not conflict. There's not a risk of death in the garden. There's not a, a great toil that comes from the work. He is at peace with his work in the ground and he's able to produce all that he his family desire and need. And there's this peace between God and people. 
peace between Adam and Eve and the God that walks with them in the garden. And everything is as it should be. And God sees it and he says that it is very, very good. But then temptation enters the world. Sin enters the world and, and the peace is shattered. The peace is broken. Things aren't the way that they used to be. And suddenly there is a crisis. And the crisis that begins to ask a question that is going to echo all through the Old Testament is this. Can God live with people who keep rebelling against him? Can God live with people who keep rebelling against him? And the answer is unknown. And it's going to be debated all through the rest of the Old Testament. And I want you to see some of the ways that this is argued and that this is, is debated. We're going to be headed here shortly towards uh, the scene where God brings Israel out of Egypt and they worship a golden calf at the foot of the mountain where he's trying to get them the law. God's going to give them a law and he's like, if you just follow my rules, I will be your God and you will be my people. Because the question keeps being asked, can God live with his people? And can people live in the presence of their God? Because every time they go and choose idols, God is this close to destroying them. And they can't seem to keep being faithful and obedient to God. And so over and over again, the question gets asked, can God live with his people and can the people live in the presence of their God? In Genesis chapter 12, we come to the next version of this question where God calls Abram. Abram is man who is famous for his faith and famous for his righteousness and famous for his obedience. And so God chooses Abram and he makes him a promise. And this promise becomes the next great moment in this crisis of whether or not God can live with his people. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's a big promise. It's several big promises. And in Genesis 22, 17 and 18, God adds to that promise. God says this in, in verse 17. He says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of your enemies. And though through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. God makes this promise to Abram and Abraham and all of his descendants this promise that his descendants will be a great nation, as, as, as great in quantity and in number as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And it's harder and harder to appreciate that, that promise about the stars in the sky. There's so much light in the world that we live in that it's hard to see the stars. But I remember as a teenager doing mission work uh, in Guyana, We'd go down a week early and we'd spend some time in the rainforest getting prepared for the mission that we were going to be doing. And, and you could lay out on the grass in the rainforest in this, this camp that we'd go to called Shanklin's. And some of you have been there. But you've been to Shanklin's and you could lay there 
and you could look at a part of the sky where there were no stars, and as you started to look there, you could see more stars showing up. There's so many more stars than we can see. And, and the idea of counting sand just feels like this exercise in endless futility. Can you imagine counting sand? One. Two. You get the idea of the grandeur of the promise that God gives to Abram. That it's impossible to even fathom or, or imagine the extent of the nation and the size of the descendants that you're going to have. And not just great in quantity, but great in quality. A, a nation to be admired by other nations. A great nation. And he tells them there's going to be a land that I promise to give to you and your descendants, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. It's the land that today people continue to fight over because of the promise and the history that goes with the land around Israel and Canaan. The Israel, uh, the land that God promises to that people, he says, I will make it yours. And he tells them not only that, but I will bless all the nations of the earth through you and your, your descendants. Through this nation, I will bless all the other nations. And these promises that God makes to Abraham become a way that you can measure how things are going throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And this is in Genesis 12 and 22. Through the rest of the Old Testament, you can ask yourself, how are things going with God and his people? Are there a lot of them? Are there challenges to the growth of the people of Israel? Because when there are, things aren't going well. Are they a great nation that is influencing the countries that are around them? And you can evaluate whether the promise is, is taking place or not. You can go to the next promise of whether or not they're in the land that has been promised to them, a land flowing with milk and honey without threat from enemies. You can evaluate the promise, whether the people are being faithful and whether God is able to live among them. When you ask yourself, are they being a blessing to all the nations of the earth? You can evaluate. Is God living among his people and are his people able to live in the presence of God? Are the promises given to Abraham being fulfilled? And these become a lens that you can view all the other stories of the Old Testament. And you can trace the history of God and his people through the, the success and difficulty and challenge and at times limited failure of these promises that God has made to Abraham. And all of that culminates in the story that I mentioned a minute ago in Exodus 33. The story where uh, God has just through the ten plagues and the mighty act of flooding Pharaoh's army in the Nile River is, is, is God's, or is in the Red Sea is God's people... <laughs> In the Red Sea is God's people cross on dry ground. The people come out and they're now free from the slavery and bondage under which they've suffered for centuries. And they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God is giving Moses the law. And he says, give, give the people these rules and instructions and commands of mine. And if they will follow me and obey me, I will be their God and they can be my people. And the promises, great nation, many descendants... Blessing to other nations. The promised land, all of these things I'm going to give to you if you will follow my law. Joshua's up there with Moses. He says, Moses, there's the sound of war in the camp. And they go down and it's not a war. In fact, it's a huge party. It's a huge celebration as the people have got up to indulge in revelry, which is 
biblical Old Testament word for all the things you shouldn't be doing. They're doing it. And they're doing it as they're dancing around a golden calf that Aaron has made out of the jewelry that God gave them when they left Egypt because Egypt was favorable toward them even after the plagues. God has blessed them with this wealth and they're using the wealth to worship a golden cow. They're parading around the cow and they're saying, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt, the cow. Well, the real God that brought them out of Egypt is on the mountain giving the commands to, God, to, to Moses so that the people can know what it means to be his people. In Exodus 33, then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. See, after Moses comes down and he sees the party, he's furious and God is furious and they get in this argument, and God says, Moses, I'm going to kill all these people and start over with you. You're the new Adam. You're the new Abraham. You're Moses. You, you're all I need. As long as I've got you, I can still keep my promises. And Moses says, if you do that, kill me too. I won't do it. We're your people. And they get in this argument, and it says that, that Moses just really argues with God and has this, this visual image of Moses kind of caressing God's forehead and driving him towards this new idea of not killing Israel. God gives in and God says, okay, I'm going to keep my promise to these people. He says, but I can't go with you. I can't go with you. And if you've ever been a parent on a road trip, you get this. I know where we're going, and I know how we're going to get there. I just don't think we can do it in one vehicle. So you guys are going to have to, to like ride on the hood of the car, because I can't have you inside of this vehicle any longer. You're going to die. For your safety, someone's getting out right now. This is God in Israel traveling to the promised land. He says, okay, we've tried this for a while. I've tried to be with you in the pillar of the, the fire and the cloud, and, and you're following me, and things are going okay at times, but it, it's occurred to me, you're going to die if we keep traveling together. So I'll fulfill all the promises, but you're just, we'll just meet in the promised land. I can't stay in the car with you any longer. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you for even a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Moses goes to God and he says to God, if you're not going with us, we're not going because we're going to be your people and they agree to move forward. But this argument keeps coming up. This crisis cannot be avoided. The challenge remains. Can God go and be in the presence of his people without destroying them for all of their rebellion and evil and wickedness and sin? And it's a problem. 
God's afraid he's going to hurt them if he keeps traveling with them and if he is among them. And, and so you get solutions like the tabernacle where God is, is behind a curtain that separates his holiness from the people and their problems. And, and they come up with a sacrificial system where they make atonement for the sins that they're doing so that God can go with them and that they can be his people in his presence without being in danger from his holiness and righteousness and, and the things that are essential to God's very character. But can God go with these people? And by the time you get to the, the end of the Old Testament, you've arrived at this crisis where, where the ten northern tribes who've been at civil war against Judah and Benjamin for years, the kingdom itself has split. And God is having a hard time with these people. And they've had kings, and some of them are good, and some of them are evil. And, and it's this history filled with rebellion and problem and crisis. The ten northern tribes have been taken captivity by Assyria and really never come back. And the tribes of Judah and Benjamin that have kind of stuck together through all of this are taken into exile in Babylon. And if you've listened to the story of the Old Testament, you know that one of the great crises of the Old Testament is what do we do when we're God's people in exile? How does that make any sense? Because we're not a great nation. We're not plentiful. The promised land is back there. The temple's been destroyed. The line of kings has been broken. And the final word in all of the Old Testament is destruction. And you ask the questions that let you evaluate if God can live in the presence of his people and if his people can live in his presence safely and in a way that is valuable and that restores the order of the Garden of Eden in the people who desire to follow God. Can it even happen? And at the end of the Old Testament, the answer is they're not a great nation. They've been in exile. They've come back, but what they've come back to is a temple that doesn't have God dwelling in it, and they don't know if his spirit will ever return, and they're in this crisis. How, are we a blessing to other nations? No, we're a laughingstock to other nations. Empires march across us and destroy us just to get where they're going to attack the people they're actually aiming at. Great nation. Promised land. Blessing to all nations, descend, what, how could this be? It feels like it's never going to happen, never going to work. It's an impossibility if you stop the story at the end of the Old Testament, that the people of God will ever figure out how to live in his holy, loving, wonderful presence. And it's not because God is judgmental. He's given them grace and compassion and mercy over and over again. And every time that he, that he sends them off to be conquered by someone else, he also sends a redeemer to bring them back. It's a love story of God doing everything in his power to bring the people to him. And every time they're around him for too long, they betray him and commit adultery on him with other idols. And you have this, this language over and over again of betrayal and abandonment and crisis and questioning. And it looks like it cannot be resolved. The line of kings is shattered. The temple is empty. And then an angel appears to Mary. In Matthew chapter 1, he appears to Joseph. 
Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had it in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The name of this baby is the answer to the crisis of all of human history leading up to this birth. Can God live on earth with his people? Can the people of God live in the presence of an almighty creator who requires holiness and righteousness and faith? And the answer at the end of the Old Testament appears to be it doesn't look like it's possible. And then an angel shows up to Joseph and says, no, stay with your wife even though she's pregnant because she's going to have a little boy. And I've got to tell you this little boy's name. He's going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us because God is coming to be with us. That's the power of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth to a virgin named Mary who is betrothed to a man named Joseph who wants to do the right thing and an angel tells him, Joseph, here's what's coming. God is going to be with us in this baby boy and in this child and in this man. God is with us. The problem becomes resolved in Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 and, and through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Again, in the line of kings, which has been crushed, there is this man Joseph who now is going to have a son. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Fulfilled. 
And the angel left her. The Old Testament, God, how can any of your promises come to be? It doesn't appear that you're with us. Your presence has left the temple. The line of kings has been shattered. David was told he would sit on a throne forever. One of his descendants would sit on this throne forever. Where is that descendant who will sit on the throne? Crisis, crisis, crisis. Meanwhile, there's a prophet named Simeon and a prophetess named Anna who sit in the temple every day praying to God, God, show us your solution. Show us your answer. Simeon, who's a prophet, was actually told, Simeon, you will still be alive when you see the answer to the crises and the questions that you pray about every day. God, what about the promises? What about the kings? What about the temple? What about your presence? What about the blessing to all the nations? God says, hang on, Simeon. You won't die before you see this come to fulfillment. Luke chapter 1, when Mary and Joseph walk into the temple holding this little baby boy Jesus so that he could be dedicated and circumcised, Simeon looks at him and says, now I can die. Because the questions have been answered. The crisis has ended. Emmanuel, God is with us. God can be in the presence of his people because he's become a human in the flesh. The crisis is over already just by Jesus being born. That's the power of the nativity scene. It's not that it includes poor shepherds and rich wise men. That's there. It's not that it just includes Mary and Joseph being faithful and rejected and finding a place to be in a manger. That's there. But the power of the nativity scene and all of the cuteness that we've given to it is in fact that it's answering the crisis that the Old Testament felt was unanswerable. And all of that is answered in the birth of this little boy, Jesus. And while he is in that moment a boy, when Paul writes in Philippians about what is happening in this moment, Paul describes it this way. That we, in our relationships with each other, should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, Jesus was in nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That's the Christmas story is that Jesus gave up his, his equality with God, not using it to his own adventures, becoming nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And for those of us who want to be Jesus in the world that we're living in today, and this is where we're going to pick up next week, Jesus is still living in the flesh, in the world today, through the body of Christ. And the body of Christ becomes Paul's way of talking about the church. And Jesus tells the apostles, when I go, it's going to be good, because when I leave, I will send one to you, the counselor, who will do even greater things through you, because the Spirit of Jesus and the Spirit of God is now going to come into those who are followers of Jesus in the flesh to continue doing the things of Jesus in the world. Can God live in the presence of his people by the power of the Holy Spirit? He dwells inside every one of us. And that started 
when God came to earth. And the little boy who they will call Emmanuel, God is with us. God is with us. To this day, God is still with us because of Emmanuel. If you need to respond to the gospel today, God's with us. God desires to be with you. And the Bible tells us that that happens because Jesus was not only born, but he was crucified and resurrected, and that he now, in his new body and new uh, creation, invites us to share in our own new bodies and new creation forever because God is with us. And when you're baptized, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you because God is in you and now works in the world through you. And if you've never received that good gift, you'll receive no better gift this Christmas than receiving the gift of Jesus Christ. If you need to do that today, respond to any other uh, need. Please come forward this morning as we stand and sing.